You're listening to Writers on a New England Stage with Gregory McGuire. This program originally aired in 2008. This is Word of Mouth on New Hampshire Public Radio. I'm Virginia Prescott. And today on the show, author Gregory McGuire, the man behind Wicked, the best-selling book and the record-shattering Broadway play. Wicked is part of a series of novels that looks anew at the characters and assumptions behind the enduring Wizard of Oz stories. Gregory McGuire traveled to Portsmouth, New Hampshire, to join the writers on a New England stage series at the Music Hall. He talked about A Lion Among Men, the third book in the Wicked series. It digs into the myths behind the cowardly lion who accompanied Dorothy on the yellow brick road. The house band Dreadnought performed for the audience as Gregory took the stage. Well, my parents always worried that I would end up on the stage. They said, why don't you go into writing and then you can be anonymous like the rest of us. Since I'm here to talk a little bit about the third book in the series called The Wicked Years, I'm going to get right to it and read you just one scene. The story is called A Lion Among Men, and it is about the cowardly lion. Now picture, if you will, the beginning of the famous MGM film starring Judy Garland, Margaret Hamilton, and Burt Lahr, in which we have the magnificent photograph, film clip of a lion roaring. And then jump the imaginative distance, perhaps the decay, you might call it, to Burt Lahr in his kind of saggy lion pajamas. And see if you will agree with me that in between that icon of a lion and that joke of a lion, there might be a creature whose story needed to be told. This is the character I call Burr. You might say Burr like that if you wanted to. Uh, It's a name that is like a shiver. He is a bit of a coward. He is born in Oz not only without evident parents, but without if you will, any pride. There is no pride of lions to raise him. He is born without a tribe. So the fact that he survives at all is is something of a miracle. But here I'm going to nip right into the middle of the story where uh, Burr's story and Dorothy's have that little bit of time together. Uh, And I pick up right when they are on their way back from the witch's castle, back to the Emerald City to claim their prize. One way or another, the witch was gone. After a couple of skirmishes with barbaric tribes, the lion and Dorothy, together with young Lear and the scarecrow and the tin woodman, made their way overland back to the Emerald City. Their hopes were high, but soon daunted. By an accident of the sort one might see on the stage, Dorothy's little yapper, Toto, took a grip on a closet curtain and gave a tug. Only useful thing the fool animal ever did. The wizard was revealed as a mere mortal and a bit of a charlatan at that. As clever with his hands, 
all those tick-tock inventions, those terrifying images he projected as he was with his diktats and fiats and fatwas. Oh my. In the confusion that followed, the Emerald City Irregulars were showered with junk, tchotchkes you could pick up at a five-and-farthing store. As the wizard rummaged through a drawer, he spoke over his shoulder. My research associates are thorough when they need to prepare the case for honorifics. You, my friend, are known as the Cowardly Lion. Oh, don't be bashful. Your history precedes you. I shall give you just what you deserve, a token of esteem suitable for wearing at court. He came up with a tin medal on a sash of green and gold. It wasn't suitable for wearing to the dump. The sash was stained with creepy beige spots. Don't want to know what that was. And the medal said, courage. It had been so clumsily produced that the first three letters were afflicted with bloat. The only legible part read, rage. <laughs> Thank you, your Osnes, said Burr, hoping it was a joke, hoping if he played along, he'd end up happy. The Wizard of Oz placed the medal around his neck. Burr lifted the medal to sniff it. A pin mounted on the back cut the softer part of his paw. I can't accept this, he began to say, but the wizard had moved on to address Dorothy, and the little girl was beaming in such high hopes of an exit visa from Oz that the lion didn't have the nerve to interrupt. Still, as they were dismissed and ushered away, Burr continued to imagine that he might somehow parry the dubious honor into a rehabilitation, perhaps even a position at the wizard's court. He was mistaken, though. His timing couldn't have been worse. The wizard's long reign had come to an end at last. Oscar's a roaster digs. The great and powerful wizard of Oz abdicated the throne and departed the Emerald City by a hot air balloon. Why? Why leave now when his adversary, the Wicked Witch, was finally done for? No one was certain. Now, when I think about the Wicked Years sequence, I will tell you that when I wrote the novel Wicked, published 13 years ago uh, this year, I did not intend for it to have any series or sequels. I intended it to be a one-off. But, you know, the world has a way, when you're trying to think of evil, of constantly giving you new material. <laughs> It's a little sad that way. I wrote Wicked expecting that it would be a commentary on the worst excesses of the 20th century, and it became, sadly, a little prescient about what we were about to endure in the 21st century. Now, the novel Wicked had always done very well. It sold well right out of the gate, I'm happy to say, and by the time it had been in print about three weeks, Having received, I'll admit, one really dreadful review in the New York Times, 18 column inches, <laughs> complete with a photograph, Michiko Kakatani, who has won the Pulitzer Prize for her reviewing. Well, I thought my career was just about over before it began. Uh, 
However, various friends of mine said, you know, really, Gregory, 18 column inches is 18 column inches. In a week, nobody will remember what she said, just that you had a big spread in the New York Times. <laughs> and more or less, that has proven to be right, because all the other reviews were great. Um, on the Sunday, um, thank you. Thank you so much for being my support group. <laughs> On the Sunday following the bad review in the New York Times, there was a good review in the LA Times. It was on the front page of the book section, above the fold, thank you very much. And while people in Hollywood don't generally uh, read novels very often, uh, they do read newspapers. So on Monday morning, the phone line was crowded with Whoopi Goldberg and Demi Moore and people rushing to get the rights to this fabulous new book they just heard about. Uh, in the end, I optioned it to Universal Studios because Demi Moore offered the most money. And besides, I was thinking, Demi Moore. Demi Moore. Demi Moore, naked and green on the cover of Vanity Fair. I mean, what's not to love? Come on. But then life went on. They developed some scripts and some screenplays and uh, version one, draft two, version three. It got worse and worse. Uh, and then I understand Demi Moore used to be married to Bruce Willis and apparently he called her a witch or something. Everything was, you know, got really ugly. Uh, so it was looking like the movie wasn't going to happen. There was a $100 million budget and no role for Mel Gibson. So... <laughs> That, that famous glass ceiling we keep hearing about this year uh, was in existence in Hollywood 10 years ago, even more than it is now. Universal didn't think that they could put up that much of a budget for a story that basically had two female roles, Glinda and Alphaba, as the lead roles. In the meantime, Stephen Schwartz was out in, in, in California. No, excuse me, not in California. He was in Hawaii. He was snorkeling, and he bumped underwater into Holly Near, the folk singer. They came up. They were friends. You know, they're probably snorkeling in the same district for a reason. But um, they popped their heads out of the water, and he said, hi, Holly. And she said, hi, Stephen. And he said, you read anything good lately? And she said, well, there's this fabulous new book called Wicked about the Wicked Witch of the West. And he said, oh, sounds like my comeback to Broadway. So apparently, as far as I understand, he swam back to the mainland um, and went to, you know, Hollywood and bought a copy of the book, read 100 pages, and his lawyers and agents tried to find out where I was and what happened to the story. He found out that Universal owned it, so he went to Universal, canny man that he is. He shut the door, and he said to the producer of the film, looky here, you can make a lot more money bankrolling a play on Broadway than you can bankrolling a very expensive and slightly iffy film. Mark Platt, who was to be the producer of the film, has produced things like Legally Blonde and, and other, thing, other movies like that, <clears throat> none of which I've seen, but I'm sure they're fine, fine, um, uh, was totally convinced. He had a secret yearning in his heart to make a, a play, to be involved in the musical theater. So it fell to Stephen Schwartz to convince me that my story would make a better play than it would make a movie. I was really not all that hard persuaded. I had known a lot about the musical theater as a boy growing up in upstate New York. But nonetheless, I listened with my somewhat Scottish Presbyterian professorial, slightly grumpy demeanor. 
uh, as he explained really quite easily why it would work as a play. He said, think about the differences between how a story is presented on the film and how a story is presented on the stage. He said, on a film, despite the computer graphic uh, magnificence and magic that people can do for their set designs, nonetheless, most of film acting is the art of the close-up. And he said, you are going to have somebody playing Elphaba, the green-skinned witch, with a 40-foot-high green face. And that actress, with all these passions that she is supposed to be representing and holding in, is going to have to be reticent about her acting style. He said, however, if you go to the theater and an actress has great passions that are part of her character, she can be alone on the stage and stride to the edge where the footlights are, and she can belt out her heart in a musical soliloquy. And because music has this great power to support emotion, in fact, a stage play will more quickly get at the heart of your very heartfelt novel than a movie might. Well, I was pretty persuaded by that, frankly. Um, but I still said, hmm, well, sounds interesting. He said, I'm so convinced that I am going to convince you that I will admit to you I have already written the first number. And I said, oh, really? Uh, he said, yes, it's going to be called No One Mourns the Wicked, and here's what will happen. And then, with a few little um, variations, he described the first seven minutes of the play Wicked pretty much as you see it if you uh, have gone to see the show. I was delighted with it, but I still kept a you know, firm uh, scowl, I would say, on my face, thinking, if he knows that the first song is going to be No One Mourns the Wicked, then he has signed on to the theme of the book, which is, we must be careful about how we besmirch our enemies. We must be careful not to call them subhuman. For whomever we call subhuman, we subconsciously permit ourselves to hurt. In order to be careful not to hurt people, we have to remember the humanity of our enemies. In his phrase, no one mourns the wicked, he convinced me he knew the theme of the book. And even though the plot of the book would change on the stage, if he got the theme right, he had my blessing. One writes a book, whether it be A Lion Among Men, or Son of a Witch, or Six Haunted Hairdos, for the theme, not for the plot. So I stroked my beard and I said, hmm. But of course, in my heart of hearts, I was thinking, well, you know, Broadway! I mean, <laughs> what's not to love, really? Uh, the story of that decision to let Wicked become a musical rather than a play was a turning point in my life. People often ask me, what's, what book are you happiest to have written? And Wicked has to be it. It's now sold about four million copies, and it has given me the financial security that gave me the courage in my own heart to go out and adopt my own children. As, a, as an artist living on his own uh, income, I wouldn't, have a, I wouldn't necessarily have wanted to trounce a child's life by having to make those children live on my budget pre-wicked. But interesting how things turned about. I don't know if this is true, but somebody from Variety called me this afternoon for an interview, and he said, do you know that Wicked is the most valuable property that Universal Studios owns? 
And I said, you're just kidding me. Go on, say something else pretty like that. <laughs> and he said, no, no, it is. So the decision Mark Platt made not to turn it into a film, but to put it on the stage has been right in just about every direction. Thank you very much. How about a nice New Hampshire welcome for Gregory McGuire? One more time. Well, what a joy and what an honor to be speaking with you tonight and uh, an adoring audience, clearly. A lot of people have seen the play. A lot of people know your work, but maybe not some of the inspirations for your work. I wonder if you could bring us back to the first moment that you saw that MGM 1939 Wizard of Oz and, and what captured you? Well, I often say, because it is usually true, that my childhood was the strictest and most repressive of any childhood in the last century. Um, <laughs> now, it's a joke, but it also is true, and, and the, the serious part behind it is that my father and my stepmother who raised me were very concerned that they not lose any of us to accident or sickness. The uh, time that my parents had to keep us intact was, well, the strategies were in the house. We were not allowed to uh, ride bicycles, for instance, until we had passed the New York State driver's license exam uh, when we were 16, and I mean that seriously. They were afraid we wouldn't understand the rules of the road and we'd be smushed and that would be the end of us. Uh, we were not allowed to cross streets without permission until well into uh, two digits, but they gave us full liberty in the library and once a year, they let us watch one 90-minute film rebroadcast on TV. It was The Wizard of Oz. This was magnificent simply for the fact that it was a perversion of my, of my parents' totalitarian regime. What caused them to do this, I don't know. They must have remembered the film, not from their childhoods, because they were actually too old to have gotten it in their childhoods, but they remembered it from their young adult days, and they thought, oh, singing and dancing, how sweet, our children will thrive with this. I, I don't know, maybe they all went into the kitchen to drink gin or something. Uh, you would have thought they'd have noticed the numbers of, of you know, urinary accidents and you know, bladder explosions that happened whenever the flying monkeys came in. I mean, <laughs> seven damp spots on the sofa, one after the other. Uh, the place was profoundly frightening. The, you know, Dorothy wants to go someplace where troubles melt like lemon drops away above the chimney tops, and she gets someplace where the, the place is crawling with witches, and there's a mad, despotic tyrant in um, chief administration offices, <laughs> and there's a you know poppy problem, drug problem. You know, I mean, just <laughs> it wasn't really the club med that she was looking for. Let me tell you. Um, so I was fascinated not just with the, the magic, the adventure, the romance, and the music of it, but with the sordidness and seeminess and, and nightmare terror of it. Weren't you? <laughs> Actually, that wasn't my Wizard of Oz, now that I think of it. But then you went on, you became a children's book writer, actually studied here in New England at Simmons, got a master's, and wrote your first book, 
at 25, and then a PhD at Tufts, and went on to write many books, and then Wicked. In 1995, it was published? That's right. And now, that play, Wicked, has gone on to earn $500 million plus worldwide. It broke box office records in London's West End for its first week of opening. People love it. Absolutely ravenous about it. With good reason. But do you find yourself now, you said... Uh, that you never intended to write a series. This is now your third book in the Wicked series. Do you find yourself now thinking when you're writing about writing for the stage or you seeing characters, you know, I see movie? How did you guess? (laughs) (laughs) Okay, bring on the dancing monkeys. (laughs) Uh, the, The fact is, actually, I wrote for the stage when I was a kid. It was the staircase in our in our living room, coming down into our parlor, we were also enamored when I was a little bit older of The Sound of Music because, hey, it was Catholic, you know. We had seven kids. It seemed we were either going to be Snow White and the Seven Dwarves or the Von Trapps with the seven kids. Um, so we used to sit on the stairs and try to sing in harmony. It all ended very, very sadly, I'm afraid. Uh, but I did have a, a calling, as it were, to put voices and movement in my life somehow. The fact of being a novelist was almost accidental. I might have written for the stage, and indeed I did write music and had a a little three-month career as a very popular singer-songwriter. All three months? Yes. Great. I'll be making a comeback one of these decades. This is a special edition of Word of Mouth on NHPR. I'm Virginia Prescott. Today, an hour with writer Gregory Maguire. I spoke with him in front of an audience at the Portsmouth Music Hall for the Writers on a New England Stage series. We'll hear more from the best-selling author of Wicked in just a moment on New Hampshire Public Radio. When Wicked came out, it was published as an adult novel by HarperCollins, and the editors at HarperCollins decided not even to put on the back flap of the book that I also had written children's books for 14 years. I think they wanted two things. They wanted it to look like I had sprung full-blown from the head of Zeus, a perfectly competent novelist. Uh, But also, I think they were aware that people who knew me as a children's novelist might pick up this book as just a slightly fatter children's book and then be, you know, horribly depressed. Uh, (laughs) When the play opened, book sales went way up. They had never been bad. They had always been actually mounting upward for all the months and seasons that it had been in print. But when the play opened, of course, well, any book that has a $14 million advertising budget behind it will do pretty well. Uh, But girls particularly... Now, I'm not just talking about the fact that people always say girls like the play. I'm sure they do, but boys do too, and and retirees and people from New Jersey, they they like the play. Um, But girls are really smart, 
and girls coming to like the play would actually think about primary sources and would go back and read Wicked, whether it was written for them or not. They began to write me letters. And again, they weren't letters about the sex club. They were saying, what happens to that little girl at the end, that political prisoner, Nor? She's got her, her arms and her legs shackled together, and the witch tries to release her from the wizard's miserable grasp, but she can't affect that. So what happens to her, ask these girls. And I feel it's not really kind to say, well, you know, go check on um, www.amnestyinternational.com and you can learn a lot. Uh, it doesn't seem fair. So in part to answer the questions of those girls, and I had a daughter in the interim, I found myself compelled to go back to Oz for Son of a Witch. It was partly that need to answer readers, and it was partly the presence on the front pages of our newspapers three years ago, no, it was more than that now, of uh, the photos from Abu Ghraib. They were so powerful, and I felt so powerless, that in order not to go mildly insane, I had to go back to a place where I actually had some power. And as an artist, one can manipulate just a little bit. So you went back into that world of Oz where maybe it's a safer environment to work things out, perhaps? Well, it is sad, but it is safe. It's, it's lonely, and it's safe. You can look at things carefully. I mean, if I could have flown over to Iraq and rented a bulldozer and you know, made a political statement and a statement about humanity at, outside of Abu Ghraib, I would have done that. But... I couldn't get the visa. <laughs> you know, we, well, we can't do things like that. So we do what we can. And sometimes that is just speaking to one another. Well, I'm going to pry into that a little bit more because there, you did suffer a, a great loss at your birth. You're, you lost your mother. She died from complications when you were born. And I noticed in looking through these three books especially, um, that many of the characters don't have or can't remember their parents. And I wondered if that's a way, and in fact, Nessa Rose's mother dies when she's mm -hmm. in childbirth. Is this a way for you to process that? Is this for, a way for you to work that out in, in this universe? I think that artists never know really why they do what they do. Very often, the subconscious will tell you something at the last possible minute uh, about what you've been working on for years. But I suppose your, your thesis is probably correct. Whenever I think about a family with a happy relationship and a nurturing relationship between a child and their guardian or a parent or a pair of parents, I think, so what's to write about? You know, what's going to happen? You're going to run out of Cheerios? You know, that's not that serious a problem. Uh, I, I think probably I cannot even conceive of something as a story unless there is an urgent pressure born from a, a, a significant missing adult, I guess. Yeah. I'd like to get to some readers' questions here. Um, let's see. Uh, this seems to be a frequent theme in these questions. When the play musical... Wicked came out. Were you satisfied with the result? Do you like the changes that were made? 
Well, there were a lot of changes made to the musical, um, as some of you who have read both the book and seen the play will know. There's an eensy, weensy, teensy little change at the very end of the play. Um, I won't spoil it for anybody who doesn't know it. And when I first heard what this little moment of revelation was going to be, I admit I, I ground my back teeth and smiled and gulped. Uh, I heard this at a reading, a kind of sung reading of the play in New York about a year before it opened. But the play ended 90 seconds later, and I made sure that I was the first person on my feet to give the play a standing ovation. It did take me a little while to digest the difference between the kind of sorrow and uh, passion, uh, I suppose, of my own novel. My own novel is a tragedy. It's the tragedy of a life of strength that is cut down in its prime. And the play is bittersweet. It's not quite tragic, but it's bittersweet. But the more times that I saw the play, since the message was the same, I ended up thinking, let the play be the play. How, what a wonderful thing. Do you remember when Interview with a Vampire that film was made yes. based on Anne In New Rice's Orleans, books. when I was there. In New Orleans. Well, you probably remember then the great brouhaha when Anne Rice didn't like, mm-hmm. you know, the final cut. And she took out a big full-page ad in the New York Times, and she said something like, I don't know, you know, the vampire sucks, and so does this movie. Um, <laughs> That's know. worse than getting kakutanied, by the way. <laughs> yes, I, I imagine that it would be. Talk about the hexes and the curses that woman could uh, lay upon you. But I, I didn't want to do that. Uh, And at the same time, I wanted to appreciate the fact that when I was writing Wicked, I will be honest with you folks, the spirit of L. Frank Baum and the spirit of Margaret Hamilton did not raise up out of the soil behind me to croak nevermore on my lintel. They they stayed and let me work on my work at my own pace and to my own end. And I figured that even though I wasn't dead yet, uh, I should let the creators of the play have as much license as possible so that they could make the best possible theatrical experience as they could. And I think I'm very happy to have have made that decision. We have a a lot of writers, clearly, in the audience tonight. A lot of people are asking about process. One, tell us more about your writing day or week. Do you have a words target or hour, a schedule every day? Now that I have such a complicated business life, it doesn't matter that I have several employees who come in to answer mail and do accounts. I still have to supervise them. I still have to tell them what to do and what not to do. So my goal every day when I'm not on tour, when I'm actually writing fiction, writing first draft, is to begin at 9 o'clock and end at 3.20, which is when the school bus comes home. Uh, Generally, because of the problem of emails, that virus, that scourge. Uh, I basically usually finally get to work about five after three. <clears throat> and I end at 3.20. After cleaning the fridge. <laughs> yes, exactly. But I do do my 15 minutes a day, and you know it adds up. <laughs> Slow and steady wins the race. You said it. You know, you mentioned uh, that you've adopted three children um, they must really love you reading bedtime stories to them after hearing you do your reading today. They think I'm nuts. Are you kidding? <laughs> I will tell you something, though. Uh, my children have not seen the film The Wizard of Oz. They have seen Wicked three times. They love Alphaba. I have to say to my second-grade daughter, Honey, 
just cool it a little bit with references to Wicked when on the playground. Not every family in Concord has their own private family musical. You know, <laughs> in a way, I got that that wish to be the Von Trapp family a little bit more than I intended. Um, but when I came to think about a lion among men, when I came to think about the cowardly lion, one of the reasons I wanted to write about him is because of that disjuncture I spoke about at the beginning that seems so vast between the magnificent Lion King kind of lion and the, the schlemiel, the schlump, you know, uh, of Bert Lahr in lion pajamas. I wasn't sure whether my kids would get it. My kids are pretty sensitive, but also pretty ignorant, because like my parents, I shield them from a lot of the world. So here's what I did. I bought myself a stuffed Bert Lahr, um, <laughs> a stuffed cowardly lion from uh, The Wizard of Oz. I started putting him around the house without mentioning what I was doing to see how my children would respond to him as a character. He doesn't show up much in the stage play of Wicked, and they hadn't really noticed him. I would put him, say, in the refrigerator behind the yogurt. Um, you know, I'd put him, and I'd scotch tape him near the doorbell. Uh, at, when bedtime reading came along, I might, they might say, where's the invention of Hugo Cabret? And I'd say, here it is, and he'd be the bookmark. Uh, and I did that for a couple of weeks intentionally, but then one day, I went out and I bought a large, ornate, old-fashioned birdcage that stood about this high. That's about two and a half, three feet high and was about a foot and a half round. And I put it on the middle of the dining room table and I put this tiny little stuffed lion, he's about five, six inches, in a corner of the cage which is with his head down and I left him there. At 3.20, the school bus pulls up. I put my pen down, I wait. The kids come in, they rampage around the house like little monsters, the way children will. And eventually they made their way into the dining room. What's the lion doing in the cage? Oh, I don't know. Well, take him out. Why? Just take him out. Do your homework and I'll take him out. <laughs> it was profoundly unsettling for them to see this image of a creature who, that they had been playing with uh, incarcerated. I have tried to teach them to be kind, but I have not tried to change the shape and strength of their feelings. So the fact that they could, without prior knowledge of the cowardly lion, feel this surge of curiosity and empathy toward a stuffed animal in a difficult fix gave me, in some ways, the theme and the answer to A Lion Among Men. It gave me the courage, myself, to write the story of a coward, and it gave me the answer to how a coward might eventually find courage. It's how they did it. Wow. We won't get to all of these questions, but I do believe this one is answered, and I want to just acknowledge 13-year-old Nancy, who asked why you write so much about The Wizard of Oz. I think you've uh, answered that. But she wanted to mention that Confessions of an Ugly Stepsister is her personal favorite. Good. Thank you, Nancy. Thank you. I hope, Nancy, you saw the, the ABC uh, Disney film of Confessions of an Ugly Stepsister starring Stalker Channing and her eyebrows. It was wonderful. I loved it. 
Well, you talked about this a little bit. Can you go a little further with the theme of where wicked comes from? That examination that maybe our definitions of what is good and what is wicked isn't quite so clear. When I was living in London in the early 90s, uh, trying to be a writer and living on five pounds a week, just about, I, I was aware that the first Gulf War was ramping up. I noticed a headline in one of the London papers. It said, Saddam Hussein, the next Hitler. And I found my blood pressure dropping and beads of sweat forming on my brow at the thought of another Hitler. I thought, as pacifist as I am, as Quaker as I am, as Catholic as I am, could I ever countenance the murder of another human being? And yet, who among us, despite our hopes for our best behavior through our years, would have stayed his or her hand if we'd had the chance to take Hitler out halfway through World War II when news of the camps was first beginning really to be uh, common knowledge in the West? That word was so strong that for a while it sort of diverted me from my, my rather robust belief in my own political inclinations about military action. But then I caught myself and I, and I saw it happening. I said to myself, Hitler, wow, wow. That must be one of the strongest words in the English language. You call somebody a Hitler and they have no recourse. Hitler is like calling somebody a demon. It's like saying, you're a devil, you're a monster, you're an animal, you are less than human. Hitler, interestingly, is a two-syllable word with an I in the first syllable, short I, and a short E in the second syllable, not unlike wicked. <laughs> I had begun to think about writing about evil because I thought, what if I'm a, you know, what if I'm a kind of profoundly deformed, psychologically insane axe murderer and I don't even know it, I better, you know, I better examine my conscience and figure this out before I hurt somebody. Um, at the same time that this happened in London, it, uh, the London papers were doing this, there was the, um, and I'm going, to, I'm going to mind my words here because I know there are some young people in the audience, there was a, an event some of you might remember about a, um, a little boy who wandered away from the apron strings of his mother in a shopping mall in Birmingham. He did not come to a happy end and the, the uh, the villains were 11 and 14. When they were discovered, because the laws in England that obtain to the identification of a minor accused of a crime are different than those that obtain here, the biographies of these two boys were plastered all over the pages of the newspaper, and all of England was asking itself, how do people become bad? What is the background of these boys? Could anything have been done? Was there anything inevitable? Was it just luck? Now these are questions that we ask ourselves in religion class when we're eight and 10. And when we're in first year college and we're drinking a few beers at the student union, if we're lucky, we come back to them. But in fact, they're questions that we should never give up on because it's important not to become complacent. It is these questions that really led me back to the Wizard of Oz where I thought, Oh my goodness, I'm not going to write about Hitler. I'm going to write about the Wicked Witch of the West. Jesus, Mary, and Joseph, I've just had a, a, you know, a vision. I mean, everybody in the world knows about her, and no, you know, nobody knows anything about her. She's lean, she's green, she has a flying machine, that's about it. Uh, and so I thought, here I have a, a really blessed opportunity to remind us to go back to thinking about first principles. 
about how we ought to behave together as people who live in society. <laughs> It's hard to follow that up, actually, I must say, Gregory. You said that watching the 1939 MGM Wizard of Oz, something that you carried with you through your life, your kids haven't seen it, but they remember, they know the story of Wicked. I wonder if the next generation is going to remember the story of the Wizard of Oz as Wicked. I think it might be possible that they will. Certainly my kids do, and a lot of the kids in Helen's second grade do, whether they want to or not. Um, when I was going out on book tour for Wicked, uh, the novelist Alice Hoffman, who is a friend of mine, called me up and she said, Gregory, is HarperCollins going to send you um, somebody to manage you on the road? I said, no, thank you. I can manage myself pretty well. She said, well, I'm going to send you a chaperone. And she did. <laughs> She sent me a Wicked Witch of the West puppet. Alice Hoffman said, when you are going out on book tour, she said, never leave a bookstore with somebody you just met. <laughs> I didn't think that was terribly likely, but she said, here's what to do. Go to a cunning bistro across the street. Order yourself a small split of champagne set it on the table across from you, and the Wicked Witch of the West puppet will fit right on top of it. She said, let that be your dinner partner. She said, you, you, you take her out and nobody will bother you. <laughs> now, Alice Hoffman is very smart, but in actual fact, you take this gal out and everybody bothers you. They come out of the woodwork to bother you. And that is because we all know there is evil in the world, and it's easier to, to give it a face than to think of it as being inchoate and murky. Back to Dorothy, back to those days when I was little watching The Wizard of Oz on my black and white screen TV, I always thought there ought to have been a second verse to our famous national anthem, Over the Rainbow, to give Dorothy just a little bit of warning. And the second verse would have been something like this. <clears throat> Somewhere over the rainbow, she's there too. Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> and the dreams that you're scared to dream really might come true. 